So this morning we'll be reading from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 16, um, and then Nancy will pray for us. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that all these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Heavenly Father, we just come before you today um, grateful for your triumphal entry, uh, that you come in unexpected and lowly ways, uh, that you're constantly calling us to um, falling into a downward mobility um, of just moving into a place of more humility. I pray that you would help us to receive you today. Um, that we would make space for you in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, we thank you for the work that you're doing um, to advance your kingdom, and um, we just give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Good morning, church. It's good to see you uh, this morning. If you're new here, my name is Matt Ortiz. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, uh, if we haven't met yet, uh, please, after the service, introduce your, yourself to me. And if this is your second time here, you could probably introduce yourself to me again because I'm so scatterbrained on Sunday mornings, I probably just spaced out and forgot. But it takes a few times. I'm a slow learner. I'm about as smart as I look. So please, introduce yourself to me again if you, if you can. So we are in the middle of a season leading up to the greatest event in all of history. Does it feel like it? Sometimes we can get bogged down with the routine of life. Now, Easter, it's just another day on the calendar. But we are gearing up to celebrate the most important event that ever happened in history. I want us to feel, I pray by God's grace and the power of his Holy Spirit that we feel that this morning, that we feel that this week. You know, Christianity requires faith. But I'm telling you, it is not a blind faith. It is a faith based on historical, verifiable facts about Jesus. It's not just a good idea. This is what happened. This is truth. And there are massive implications for your life and for your soul, for your eternity. Now, without God's intervening, without him opening our eyes, without him opening our ears, without him softening our heart to his truth, we are inclined to reject those facts about Jesus. But the facts are still there, and we have to do something with it, embrace them or reject them. And now this raises a question. How do we know which facts are important? Well, the Apostle John helps us with that. John was an eyewitness. He lived and walked and talked and, and ate with Jesus. And of all of the apostles that Jesus had, it seems that John was closest to Jesus. And so John had a lot of information, a lot of facts about Jesus. And in 21 chapters of his gospel, he devotes 
about half of his book to four days in Jesus' life. That's got to say something about what he thinks to be important, right? And it was Palm Sunday, which is we celebrate every year the week before Easter. And then the second day is known as Maundy Thursday. Maundy is a word that, that points to um, a, a word that means command. Uh, it's referring to the, the, the Last Supper in the, in the upper room when he instituted the, the Lord's Supper, and then he washed the disciples' feet, and then he says, I give you a new commandment that you love each other the way I loved you. And then there's, there's um, Good Friday where we remember the crucifixion of our Lord, good because it leads to Easter and the resurrection of the Lord where Jesus conquered death and evil and judgment. Half of his book is dedicated to those four days. Now, if you grew up in church, you've probably heard this passage traditionally every single Palm Sunday. I mean, that we revisit in our church every single Sunday, but you need to remember that this scene doesn't make sense. It's, it's almost absurd because what are kings supposed to ride? They're supposed to ride great war horses, right? But here, John is highlighting this event of our king making his grand entrance riding in on a ridiculous donkey. And it's just weird. John has given us a picture of the very heart of Christianity right here, Right? He's given us a picture of what you are betting your life on, what you are betting your soul on. He's, he's giving us a picture of the heart of Christianity. So we got to look at these two very important facts. And the first one is this. Jesus is the king. You've heard me say that before, but I want you to wrestle again with the implications for your life. Do you live as if he is your king? Or do we live as if he's just a good idea? You know what, in this passage that we look at, it might be easy to imagine this whole Palm Sunday kind of snuck up out of, uh, on Jesus and kind of surprised him. Like he's just strolling into Jerusalem, minding his own business, and all of a sudden a crowd comes out of nowhere like a flash mob, and they start singing, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel. And Jesus blushes and says, ah, oh, shucks, guys, you, you shouldn't have, but okay, I'll ride this little donkey in to Jerusalem for you all. I'll play along. But that's not what happened. Jesus is in total control. Jesus planned this. Jesus shows up with absolute authority. He enters Jerusalem, the city of God, claiming to be the king of Israel. That was a major declaration. That's a major claim. And so what he's doing right here is he's making an in-your-face confrontation. Now, we know this if we look at the context. Earlier, if you've read the book in chapter 11, you know that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and all kinds of people put their faith in Jesus because it was this amazing miracle, right? Word gets back to the religious leaders and they call an emergency meeting and in verse 48 says this, if we let him go on like this, you know, doing these horrible things like raising people from the dead, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. That is what is important to them. Israel longed 
for the Messiah. They long for the Messiah to show up and, and deliver them from the Roman oppression. And the religious leaders thought, you know, there's no way that it's this Jesus guy. He cannot be the Messiah. And so they're afraid that these people will rise up around Jesus and start a rebellion. And then the Roman army will step in and crush the rebellion and remove them from leadership and dismantle the nation because they failed. These religious leaders failed to keep things under control. And so what will they do now? The next verse says... Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up and he says, he says, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation shall perish. What's weird here is he's kind of declaring the gospel while he's kind of setting up a hit on Jesus. It's the, the weirdest thing, but that's another sermon. He said, it's better for you that one man die for the people then the whole nation perish. The passage goes on. It goes on to say that from that day on, these religious leaders, they conspired. They conspired to kill him. So what is, Jesus knows this, and so he hides out in this remote village called Ephraim, and it was not because he was scared. He wasn't scared. It just wasn't time yet, and timing was important. Jesus keeps his cool, he waits until right before Passover. Crowds of people are just streaming in into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And they're all looking for this Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead. And the religious leaders had given orders to everyone. If anyone sees Jesus, you let us know because we need to arrest him. These are the specific, precise, exact circumstances that Jesus was waiting for, that he planned. This is the time, very deliberately, that he chooses to make his entrance into the city of God, into Jerusalem. Jesus is calling the shots. He sets this all up on his own terms. What he's doing is he is forcing their hand. We saw him do that last week during Passion Sunday. Remember when he claimed to be God? And people had to wrestle with that. What do I do with that claim? Is he Lord or is he a liar or is he a lunatic? Well, he, he presents this same uh, choice for us here today. He's basically saying when he rides in, here I am. I, what are you going to do? Are you going to crown me or are you going to kill me? There is no other option. You know what? It, it's very common and understandable that a lot of people um, turn to Jesus and they say, Jesus, help me, or Jesus, guide me, or Jesus, protect me, or Jesus, comfort me. It gives me courage to face the future. It gives me more joy and fulfillment. Free me from my loneliness. Give me peace in the midst of stress. Improve my relationships. Strengthen me to handle this situation. Give me wisdom to handle that problem. And you know what? That's good because Jesus is the one that we should turn to. And Jesus says, I can do all that but I am here to do so much more. I can be your shepherd. I can be your friend. I can be your priest. I can be your strength, but I won't be any of those unless I am your king. 
you know, we usually want a God who will comfort us, who will just comfort us, not confront us. Jesus says, if you want me to come into your life, you must surrender all of your rights, you must surrender all of your claims, you must surrender all of your privileges to me. Crown me or kill me. This flies in the face of American culture. This flies in the face of church culture in America. But it still stands for us today. Some of us say, you know what? I tried Christianity. I tried it. I gave it an honest shot. But you know what? It didn't work for me. I came to Jesus for him to make my life better. I I came to Jesus to uh, to make my life happier and, and, and for me to be more fulfilled. But now I'm disillusioned because you know what? It's not working. And I want to tell you something. It's not working because Jesus won't come into your life at all unless he comes into your life as king of all. The way we know that Jesus has come into our life is that we don't just obey when he tells us to do something that we already want to do. We obey when he contradicts what we want to do. If I don't have a king who can contradict me, then you know what that means? It means I have set myself up to be my own king. And we effectively either crown him or kill him. There's no other option. He's either our king or we consider him dead to us and just totally irrelevant. So that's critical fact number one. Jesus is the king. Secondly, Jesus is a king on a donkey. Now can you imagine, imagine how the disciples reacted to this? This gets me every year. When Jesus rides in, the people of verse 13 are shouting, blessed is the king of Israel. And the disciples must have thought, oh man, this is it. He's finally making his move. He'll be crowned king. He'll overthrow the Romans and he will set us free. This is what we have been waiting for. But I think we need to talk to him about the donkey. If he's going to be our king, that's not going to work. We got to get him a better ride. (laughs) Why did Jesus choose to ride in on a donkey? A king should ride in on a war horse, right? That makes more sense. A donkey is a humble, lowly ride for a servant. So yes, Jesus rides on a donkey because he comes in humility as a servant king. But it's even more than that. We got to look at the big picture like we did last week. The Bible is one story from Genesis to Revelation. It's one story. It's a story about God saving his people and turning everything wrong in the world right. That's what the whole scripture is about. Remember last week we said that the story opens with Adam and Eve living in paradise. Life was as it was meant to be with God as their king. And he gives them one command, don't eat of that one tree. And there was nothing wrong with it, but it was a test. Would they bow to their king and submit to his authority even when they didn't understand why? 
So often, we, you know, we come across something in scriptures that says you should do this and you shouldn't do this. And we don't always understand why. And we demand to understand why, that God proved that it's a good idea before I will obey it. But God calls us to trust him. And the truth of the matter is, is that he's not random when it comes to what is good and what is not, what he decrees to be good and what is not. He's not random about it. What is good is good for us, and he wants the best for us. And sometimes it, it seems like he tells us not to do something, but God wants the best for me, so I'm going to do it because this is what I want. No, <laughs> that's, not, that's not looking to Jesus to be our king. We've decided to be king in that situation. So they decided, they do what we all do. They decided to be their own king. They decided what was good for them. And that's what sin is. Putting ourselves in the place of the king. And I'm telling you, all of the problems in the world are a result of that. All of the problems in the world are a result of that. From worrying to terrorism. All of the problems in the world are a result of the, ourselves putting ourselves in the place of the king. Do you see how important this is? This is critical. The only reason the Bible and human history doesn't end right there with Adam and Eve dead under the tree is because as we looked at last week in Genesis 3.15, God intervenes with a promise to send a, de a deliverer who would crush evil and death and eternal judgment and to set us free through his suffering. And the rest of the story, the rest of world history is about God fulfilling that promise. It is all about the arrival of the deliverer and his deliverance. This defines your life. It's so easy for us to compartmentalize our lives and dabble in Christianity here. This defines every aspect of your life because he is worthy. So what's all this have to do with the donkey? Well, Genesis 49 says, the king's scepter will not depart from Judah until the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine. God is saying that the promised deliverer, the king that you're expecting, that you're waiting, that was promised, he will be identified by riding in on a donkey. Near the end of the Old Testament, in Zechariah chapter 9, he tells us more. We are told that this messianic king, this deliverer, Jesus Christ, will put an end to war. He, he will proclaim peace to the nations. He will set his people free, and he will fully restore life to the way that it was meant to be. And how will we recognize him? Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you. Righteous, victorious, lowly. And riding on a donkey. So when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he is claiming to be this prophesied, promised deliverer. He's claiming to be the messianic king. So is the donkey all about humility and, and serving? That's important, but it's more than that. Donkeys are slow. They are short, they are awkward, they might be my spirit animal, I'm not sure. 
They're slow, short, and awkward. So, if you had to ride into battle as king, would you pick a donkey? Why not? What would happen to you? You'd be a joke, and then you'd be killed. And that's the point. Jesus rides in on a donkey because he came to die. And why did he have to die? It was the only way he could destroy evil, death, and eternal judgment without destroying us. He's our substitute. We deserve that. But he loved us too much. He chose to love us. Even when we didn't want to have anything to do with him. He died to restore us to life the way that it was meant to be. See, the very essence of sin is putting ourselves in the place of the king. Salvation is the king putting himself in the place of us. Do you see that? He did that for you. We all should have died under the tree with Adam and Eve. But Jesus came to die on the tree for us. Jesus rides in and basically says, crown me or kill me. On Palm Sunday, people shouted, blessed is the king of Israel. And on Friday, what did they shout? Crucify him. And Pilate asked, shall I crucify your king? And they answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so Jesus was crowned with thorns, nailed to a cross. And there the king died in shame, alone, and in our place. He died for our sin of putting ourselves in the place of the king. He did that out of love for the Father and for us. This is why the Apostle Paul says, God has rightly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is going to be a day, there is going to be a day when everyone everyone will not be able to deny the fact, everyone will acknowledge the facts about Jesus, that he is king who died so his people could live. And you know what? Those who reject him, those who didn't crown him in this life, those who ignored him or said that he was just a good guy but nothing more, they will weep and they will gnash their teeth for all eternity and say, well, I guess he was the king. I guess he is the king but I still don't want to have anything to do with him, and then they will get what they've always wanted forever. That's why we need to be a gospel-centered church. That's why we need to make sure the gospel is central to all of our messages, because you know what? It's not very common. That's why we need to love our neighbors. That's why we need to build relationships with them. That's why you can't let your divisions over politics get in the way of introducing your friends to who Jesus is and that he is king over all politicians. That's why, that's why you invite your friends to Sundays or your crowded houses or, or Easter Sunday. People's eternity are hanging in the balance. 
Your neighbors need you. God put you in their life for a reason to lead them to and through a life-changing relationship with Jesus and his family. Man, it's so much more than just punching your card at church, going through the motions, showing up when you can. Those who do crown Jesus in this life, when he returns, man, when we can finally see him, we will erupt in worship and sing his praises. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king. It will just be worship that just roars like thunder. All right. So what difference does this make in your heart and life today as you live with that in mind? I mean, what does it look like if Jesus, if you really do believe that Jesus is your king, if you really do believe that he's worthy of worship, if you actually believe that, how will it look in your life? That faith, what will it look like as it plays out in your life? We will either live as if he is the king of our life or we'll live as if, as, as if he were still dead and irrelevant. Practical application, just a handful of things. Ultimately, in, in a sentence, you will change. As our king, he changes us. Handful of examples. First, he will give you an upside-down view of greatness. You won't be so easily impressed with your YouTube heroes or your, your talk show podcast heroes or, or your, you know, your salesman gurus or whatever. <laughs> and the king on a donkey shows us that the way up is down. The way to be great is to serve. The way to win is to lose. It's totally opposite of our culture. We won't feel like, we won't be obsessed with the need to succeed at any cost. We won't be paralyzed by fear. We'll take risks for Jesus. We won't be crushed by what other people think. Man, it changes everything. Secondly, he gives you a heart filled with humility and confidence. No matter how great you might be in the eyes of this world, or you'll be humble because you know it's all of grace. Our king had to die for you. If you remember that, that will humble you. And no matter how lowly you might be in the world's eyes, you'll be confident because you know it's all of grace. Our king, our creator of the universe, who holds it all together, was glad to die for you. Nothing gives you confidence like that. Nothing does. And then he sets you free to serve others. Whether in your own home or on your own block or, you know, the neediest place in our city or in the 1040 window, you know, in, uh, overseas. He sets you free to serve others. You know, so often we either serve out of guilt or to get approval and, and, and there are a lot of, there are a lot of uh, you know, preachers and authors and stuff who try to 
leverage guilt or approval to get you to behave a certain way. And then when our service gets rejected or then our service gets unnoticed, we get either angry or crushed and we say, forget this. It's not worth it. I tried. But the truth is, when we bow to the king, our guilt is removed. We have God's approval. We're free to serve people out of of gratitude for him. And then fourth, he, he leads you to love people you never loved before. If you feel like a loser compared to other people, or if you feel superior compared to other people, you will not, you cannot proactively love them for their sake. You just won't. But to the extent that you bow to the king, you will know that it's all of grace, that that we are all sinners in need of of a savior, and we will be sons and daughters of the king, making us brothers and, and, and sisters, and we'll love people that we never loved before. We won't make them believe everything we believe or have the same values as us or the same culture as us for us to genuinely love them. And the last thing I'll mention in this is the change that takes place as our king. He enables you to face suffering and hard times with courage. Normally we try to avoid suffering and hard times at all costs right? That becomes our number one priority. That's not supposed to be our number one priority. But when it is, and, and, and we hit the wall, and, we, and then when the wall falls on top of us, we'll get angry at God, and we say, you know what, God, I don't deserve this. Or we get angry with ourselves. I do deserve this. God must be punishing me. But when you crown Jesus as king, You don't get angry with God because you know he hates suffering more than you do. He was willing to die, so suffering would one day come to an end. And you won't get angry with yourself because you know that God is not punishing you. He already punished all of your sin for all time in Jesus on the cross. But we forget that. And so we need to remind each other of that all the time. So there you go. Two critical facts about Jesus. He's king, and he's come to us on a donkey, and it seems like a contradiction, but it's the very heart of the Christian faith. You and I have sinned. We put ourselves in the place of the king, and the king has come to save us by putting himself in the place of us. On the cross, he got what we deserved so that we could get what he deserves. He died to deliver us from evil death and eternal judgment. He died so that we could live with him and for him forever. Life as it was meant to be. And so Jesus says, what are you going to do? How are you going to live? You will either crown me or kill me. So let's crown him. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me?